Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. This is Romana Mitra. My guest today is Christina Broadbeck from Rivet Ventures, and uh, we are looking forward to getting to know you, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and what your background is and so forth, and then we'll dive into Rivet Ventures. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Christina Broadbeck, and uh, my background is on the design and product side of things. Uh, I moved out to Silicon Valley around 2001 and uh, worked at a bunch of small startups in addition to working down at NASA at Moffett Field uh, and Keynote Systems. And then um, one of the side projects that I was working on with a bunch of friends happened to be YouTube, so I ended up uh, being the first designer there. And so the first two years that I was there, I worked on the dot-com site, and then the last, I, around two, two and a half years, um, led UX for YouTube Mobile, and then after that, um, started getting into angel investing, uh, and then also started a startup uh, in the couple space, and then uh, got together uh, with my partners to start Rivet Ventures. And Rivet Ventures is, um, what is the focus of Rivet Ventures? Yeah, so there's four female partners, and we invest in companies where the end-user demographic is predominantly female, or there's a women-led market, and we do mm -hmm. invest in both male and female founders, and our yep. average check size is somewhere between 250 to 500K. And how big is the fund? Uh, we're around 15 million. 15 million. And um, when you... Um, is it all over the United States, all over the world? What is your uh, sweet spot in terms of geography? Yeah, so currently we're focused uh, on the domestic United States, and we do invest you know, throughout the U.S., but most of our investments right now are in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Okay. And um, what do you like to see in this um, type of companies where there is a female decision maker in the purchase process, what do you need to see in terms of validation to be convinced that you want to play in that business? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure you probably hear this a lot, but to us it, it is important, is you know, a, a strong and a good team. Uh, but what, what I mean by that is you know, having a combination of being confident you know, maybe because they have worked in the space before or they know the space and the problems as, as an end user, but they know it very well, uh, mm -hmm. coupled with being coachable, uh, you know, being able to take, know what you want, but also being able to take feedback uh, is incredibly important. And uh, another one of the things that we look at a lot is we, we spend a lot of time internally uh, sort of studying the, the trends of what people who are doing, uh, of what younger people are doing. Uh, and so, and kind of finding what are the areas that are growing in that demographic, but are still sort of niche or mm -hmm. are quite manual and how of those areas, you know, how can technology help to make it uh, more scalable and to help those areas grow faster. And then another area that we look at a lot is um, areas where there are not strong brands yet, where there's not one major brand player uh, in the space. Mm -hmm. So let's do some examples. Um, how many companies are in your portfolio? Uh, we have around 17 companies. 
17 companies. So give us a flavor of what these companies are and, and how that aligns with your investment thesis and help us think through, uh, you know, or help us understand your thought process in what about those companies have compelled you to invest. Yeah, sure. I can go through uh, four companies in our portfolio that we invested in and Perfect. Uh, give you a little background on them and, and why we decided to invest. Super. Uh, so Great. One, yeah, that would be, one of them is um, called Dote. And I guess the best way to describe Dote is that it's a shopping mall on your on your phone. So pretty much any uh, and every store that you would see at a physical shopping mall, uh, you can you can shop in this mobile app. In addition to that, they have, you know, trends and, and content that to also tell you kind of what's going on, what's popular, uh, what people are purchasing just in general. But um, the, and what I really like about them is, is when, and why we partially, why we decided to invest is that the founders are just very solid. They used to work at a gaming company uh, and they really know um, how, they really know how to increase user engagement and to, pe to keep people engaged with a platform over time. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons that we invested in them. And then another company that we invested in is called Tenter, which is a, a marketplace for uh, campers, people who are wanting to go camping, and landowners who, landowners who have unused land, right, or portions of their land that is unused. And mm -hmm. uh, we like that, you know, one from an end user perspective, uh, especially in certain parts of the country, it's, it's very difficult to find camping space, uh, especially ones that are, you know, state or national because they fill up very quickly, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the summer. And there's not, you know, but yet the demand is very high, right, more than the actual supply. And um, again, the founder for that is fantastic. And, you know, a lot of the majority of travel decisions that actually happen within a family or a couple tend to happen, tend to be booked by the female. And so that fit very nicely within our thesis. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another company we invested in is called Hooked, and they have a, a mobile platform which is focused on chat-based stories. So, you know, you'll be reading, you know, fiction, and it'll be in a, in a chat message format, right? And we like that kind of going back to what I was saying before in the sense that, you know, it kind of plays on the trend of what younger people are doing. They're consuming content uh, throughout the day already in shorter, shorter formats. Uh, you know, whether it be Snapchat or Instagram uh, and, you know, and text messaging. And this really, you know, utilize something that that market is um, very used to uh, and then giving them new content to consume in that manner. And then uh, another company that we invested in was Ritual, which is a, an essential vitamin for women, uh, but they're very focused on being transparent on what the ingredients are, and, you know, just being very clear, it's very, the, the vitamin and the supplement market that's out there is, it's, it's very nebulous. It's very difficult to actually find any information, what's in the vitamin. And, and, you know, nothing is very targeted specifically for women. There's not one brand that really owns that space. And mm -hmm. the founder for that company had a very clear vision. She knew what she wanted to do. Uh, and, and we really liked, you know, where she wanted to go uh, and that there wasn't a, you know, a single brand that really owned that market so far. I see. So um, this kind of brings me to a question that um, perhaps is particularly relevant in, in what you're describing. Do you think of investing 
as a search for the next unicorn or are you looking to also you know invest in companies that are not going to be unicorn they're catering to perhaps smaller tam more niche spaces but will become solid businesses and have you know perhaps smaller exits but good investment returns yeah i don't think you know we explicitly are looking for the next unicorn what we're really looking for is you know uh businesses that are are looking to take a market that is currently very manual um, or a trend that is growing and utilize technology to, to scale that larger and make it more efficient. Um, yeah. I do think, you know, having been an entrepreneur myself and, you know, going, having gone through the, the fundraising process myself, um, that it's not, and if I had to go back and do that, I probably wouldn't have raised money for that business, right? And so I think really depend, you know, when you're starting a business, really think about what is the size that you want to grow it to. And it's not always necessary and not always ideal to raise money, right? Uh, and so I would, you know, before going out there to raise, I would really consider, you know, what is your end goal with this? Is this something that you kind of, that like, is it necessary to raise venture money? And a lot of the times it's not necessary, right? Um, and so I think thinking about that early on is probably important. Yeah. Um, you know, my observation, having talked to lots of investors at this point, you know, I talk to every week, I talk to five, six investors on this topic, exactly this question. Uh, the answers actually tend to vary significantly. There's this class of investors who are only interested in billion dollar plus TAMs and some invest in $10 billion TAMs. And then there's a there's a body of investors coming together now who are doing smaller funds like yourself who are very pragmatic and they understand that most of the exits happen in the 50 to $60 million uh, point. And, and to make good money off a 50, $60 million exit, you have to, um, you know, do it capital efficiently and, uh, you know, make sure that there is a ceiling to how much money you raise to be able to make sure that everybody has a healthy exit in that scenario. And, and that's a different class of investors. So it's interesting how, you know, like every, every market segments, I, our uh, venture market is also segmenting big time. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Yeah, I think there's a lot of change that's happening and we'll continue to see over the next few years. I mean, I think it started, you know, I don't remember exactly when Angel and Angelist launched, but uh, around that time, I think you started to see a shift. You had, you know, more and more angels playing in the market. Uh, and then, you know, I think things have kind of moved upstream and then you have more of a shift happening. I think it's going to continue to happen. Yeah. Now, um, how do you view the Series A gap in the industry? Um, there is a tremendous number of uh, micro VC firms that have come into the market. And as a result, there is a lot of seed financing. In fact, I think the numbers are getting up to 100,000 plus uh, of seed financings. But, you know, venture financing is still constant at the 1,200 to 1,500 bracket. So mm -hmm. there is clearly a huge Series A gap. How do you parse, how do you process the, the reality of the Series A gap? Right. I mean, I, I, I do think that, you know, you're having more and more companies that are funded at the earlier seed and angel levels, right? And kind of what I was talking about before, I think, 
you know, a lot of those companies don't necessarily need to raise money, right? Uh, it's, it's not necessary to go out there and create a business. And, and, and I don't think the validation should be like, oh, we raised money, right? I think that is the wrong validation. It should be like, are you building a strong and solid business, right? Uh, but, but there is, yeah, there is this gap that, you know, does occur. And I, I think, you know, as an investor, at least, the way that, you know, you can protect yourself, um, and, but it's not really necessarily protecting yourself. It's really about, like, how do you make sure that your values are aligned with the entrepreneur's values, right? And that you're offering more than, than just money, right? Because at the end of the day, money is great, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't really get you very far if there's nothing behind it, behind it. And so I know for us, like, one of the things that we really do is on the team, we all have a different skill set. And we really try and utilize that and be as hands-on as possible, uh, and try and and get it as and build a relationship as early on as possible. Like for instance, my background, like I said before, is on the design side of things and the product side of things. Yep. So I often sit down and do regular calls, if not regular in-person uh, meetings with with either the designer on the the designer or the design team. We're really early usually, so it's usually just one person. Uh, but sitting down with them and going over, you know, these are the features that are coming up. What are the flows for that? Uh, let's go through each step. How do we make it better? What are the mocks? What are the wireframes? Um, and then, you know, and then every single one of the people on our team has a different skill set that they bring to the table. And we really try and sit down with our founders and, and help them with those things. And so I think, you know, as an in investor, you want to, you know, be you want to be as involved as you can. Obviously, there's a fine line because as an entrepreneur, you don't want an annoying investor who is like kind of bothering <laughs> right. you. But you do want to you do want to make sure that like you know if they need help, you're there for them, and then to also proactively offer that help. And then on the entrepreneur side of things, you know if you're going to make the choice to raise money or to take money, you know make sure that you're taking it from somebody that like you do feel very comfortable working with and you don't feel like they're just out there to make a profit, right? Because at the end of the day, like you want to make sure that they're really your partner and they're helping you get to the next level, whatever that next level is. Christina, a slightly different line of questioning. Um, you very explicitly mentioned that you are looking for companies that are, that are looking to sell to the female demographics or uh, purchase cycles that are influenced by the female demographics. However, your fund invests in both male and female founders. Yes. Can you comment on whether you believe there is a significant bias against female entrepreneurs in the industry? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's a, an a, you know, intentional bias, but I do think the result, either consciously or subconsciously, um, is that it is it often is more difficult for female founders to raise money, right? Uh, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but I think the number of women in uh, investing partners in VC firms is somewhere between four and eight uh, percent, which is which is pretty low, right? And so oftentimes, if you have a product, regardless if you're a male or a female founder, but if you have a product that targets the female demographic, and then you go and you pitch it to um, you know, a bunch of male investors, they are not necessarily the end user demographic of, of your product, right? So they might not necessarily get it. And, you know, having been in that position myself, you on the founder side, you know, there are times that you get comments that are like, okay, well, you know, like, let me go ask my wife if she would use this. Let me ask my girlfriend if she would use this, right? Or let me ask my female friend. Um, 
And so I think, you know, one of the, the valuable things that we provide and we hope to provide is, you know, a, oftentimes a female end user perspective ourselves because we are for female partners. Well, but that's different, though. I, I think even male, um, you know, founders who are catering to the female demographic face that problem. Yes, that's, that's definitely true. Um, and so you are asking more in terms of is it difficult for them to raise money? I mean, yes, I yeah. do think it, I do think it is more difficult for for female founders to raise money, um, both because regardless of if their you know end user demographic is female or not, um, I do think it can become even more difficult if you are a female founder and you're targeting a female demographic. And why is that? Uh, sort of what I was talking about before. I mean, one, you have, you know, all of the potential biases that exist just being a female founder, right? Uh, like, unfortunately, people tend to pattern match. If you don't see a lot of female founders, like you don't know how to necessarily place them uh, into your mental model that has existed, right? Uh, and then if you're also targeting a female demographic uh, and, and you're pitching male investors who aren't necessarily the core end user demographic, there's also... No, I, I buy your... So you have to separate the two issues. I buy your point about female end user demographic and, and it is harder for men to understand that demographic. That I buy, and but that is, that is not a female... That is not a bias against women entrepreneurs. That is a bias that these... May, this men, male investors do not know how to understand that market because they don't have direct in, experience of that market. That's a different issue than having bias against female invest, uh, entrepreneurs. And, and I happen to believe that there is no bias against women entrepreneurs in the industry. If you are presenting something that is fundable, quote-unquote, that fits the model of venture capital, I don't believe that there is a bias. Yeah. I mean, I do think that I, I don't think it's necessarily always a, a a conscious bias, but I do think you know it is changing for sure, and I absolutely think it's it's changing. I think there's more um, understanding that that you know um, it's that there's less women that have been historically funded, and um, and so I do think that people are really trying now to be. Uh, more open with their thought process and trying to recognize if they have had a bias and if they do pattern match. But I do think that it has existed. It's changing, uh, but I don't think that we're there yet. The thing that is actually unambiguously true is that there aren't enough female technologists in the industry yet. And as a result, there aren't enough, you know, comparatively speaking, there aren't as many female founders who go out to raise money for credible ventures. That is a mm -hmm. fact, and hence the number of companies that are female-founded that do get funded is obviously not as high because the starting point is not as high. Mm -hmm. And that can only change when we have more technical, you know, technically trained women in the industry, and that has to start more at the university level, and they're working on it. The universities are working on it big time. Yeah, I do think that's true. I also do feel, though, that, you know, there's many ways to get women into technology, and oftentimes it's not, you know, it, it doesn't have to be very clear-cut, okay, go into science or math, right, uh, or, or engineering, right? Uh, it, 
I, you know, I came from a background that was actually liberal arts and sciences. I was a history major and then came into technology through design, right? Uh, and most of my life, I, uh, I never thought that I would go into anything related to technology. You know, I was very much like focused on the arts, right? And uh, it was really kind of this one moment when I was in college when I saw that technology could be creative, that I could, that I, you know, using, like doing, writing HTML, seeing that as, as really a creative outlet uh, is what drew me into technology, right? So I think we, we also need to expand how we expose people to technology uh, and how, and, you know, there's different things that get different people excited, right? And instead yep. of always talking about it as, okay, we need more women in STEM, sometimes there's ways to get women into technology that are not just directly STEM, right? And maybe it's through the arts, maybe it's even through, like, um, it could potentially be through writing, right, which is not directly STEM, but you could focus that writing on technology, right? So I think we need to be more broad in terms of how we get women or anybody into technology versus just saying, okay, you need to study, you know, science or engineering or math. But to be fair, if you know, right now the trend, one of the big trends in the industry is artificial intelligence, and we see startup after startup that is doing something or the other in the realm of artificial intelligence. Now, if you, if a founding team goes to a VC for investment, they're going to look for real artificial intelligence expertise. And if you're a female founder who are trying to finance or who's trying to finance an artificial intelligence startup, and you don't have any technical background in that, that's just not going to fly. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that you should go and work or create a startup that you don't have the expertise in, right? I was just saying that there's other, that, you know, there's many, like, oftentimes, regardless of what gender it is, like, people will, for instance, like, drop out of college and they're self-taught, right? Uh, I think there's, the same thing can, ha like, happen in the sense that there's different paths to getting into technology. Maybe you're dropping out of school. Maybe it's you went to a four-year degree and you happened to study journalism or something, right? And then later you, you found your way, your focus into, into tech through that, right? I'm just saying that there's ways to bring any gender, but also specifically women, uh, into technology and have them focus on technology without it being straight, you know, engineering, math, or science. You know, and no, and I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just presenting a counterpoint that there are limits to what that can achieve. You know, without core technology background, it's very hard to do core technology companies. Of course, and you and you know, and if you don't have that background, you're you're you probably shouldn't be starting that business or working for that. I agree with that. I agree with that. I, on the other hand, you can you know a lot of what you were talking about of. You know, companies, if you don't have that background, but you're still reasonably comfortable with technology, uh, you know, able to process technology, able to, you know, lead teams and so forth and maybe build brands or in consumer brands and, and stuff like that, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Exactly. And that has happened a lot. And it, yeah, and it definitely happens a lot. I think one of the the beautiful things that we've seen about technology, you know, especially in the past decade, is that it has become a lot more accessible. We have a lot more plug and play solutions uh, than we had before, right? And so that expands the, the, uh, the, um, the numbers of people who can, uh, you know, create a startup, right? Without necessarily having deep tech technological skills. 
Um, obviously, technological skills are incredibly important, and we do look for that, you know, on teams or ourselves. But I do think it has it, it has made it easier, and it has allowed more people to create businesses uh, that weren't able to create businesses before. Absolutely, e-commerce has become very easy to build businesses around these days. Right, for sure. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, nice speaking with you. And uh, audience, thank you for listening to uh, my conversation with Christina Brodbeck. Um, please stop by at one of our mentoring roundtables any week. Uh, you, you know, the schedule is on our website, 1mby1m.com, free public roundtables. You can register to pitch or at attend. And I look forward to spending time with you on one of those working sessions and actually working on your project. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast.